Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church, in modern times, and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Irene Alexander. Irene is an assistant professor of theology at the University of Dallas. She received her MA and PhD summa cum laude from Ave Maria University. She specializes in moral theology, Christian marriage, and bioethics. Irene has published in Nova et Vetera, the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly, the Josephinum, and the Linacre Quarterly. Irene is a wife and mother to five children. Thank you so much for joining us today, Irene. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So I want to dive right into a topic that you're familiar with and have often spoken about, which is what John Paul II called the feminine genius. As a professor with five young children, what does the feminine genius mean to you and how do you live it out in your daily life? Okay, so... John Paul uses this language of this kind of genius of woman or the, the feminine genius. And by that, I think he means that a woman in her nature has certain gifts or qualities that are kind of by nature feminine. So for example, he uh, actually, he draws a lot on St. Edith Stein, who you also may know as St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, who wrote a lot actually on um, on this topic of woman. So he draws a lot on her ideas. And um, so some similarity between them is that they talk about this feminine genius um, as a kind of uh, the particular gifts, like, for example, um, receptivity. So a woman, even in her constitution, in her body, is made to receive others, especially other persons. Now, of course, this maybe makes you think of pregnancy, but this is true of all women as a part of their nature. There's something that, that what's physical in their body is sort of mirrored in the soul. So she's kind of able to make room for others. Um, So this kind of receptivity also uh, is kind of related to another one of her gifts, namely her, her intuition or her empathy. So woman has a particular genius for, uh, entering into the thoughts and feelings of others. Like I'll give you an example. When our kids were younger, we, well, we still take them to a pediatrician, but on this occasion we had a couple kids and we would go to the doctor. And one time I, I went and um, our, our own pediatrician was pregnant four or five months or something. So that, that stage where, you know, you wonder, is she really pregnant? But you know, I knew she, <laughs> but I thought like, like if my husband went to take the kids he, first of all, he probably wouldn't ask because, you know, you don't want to like be wrong, you know, especially right. but like, so I took the kids to this appointment and like within a few minutes, like when I just said, Oh, how's this going? She just shared with me, you know, how are things going for her? Um, she already had one kid and now this is her second one. And she wonders how can I love the second one as much as I love the first one? Will my love be divided? And like all of a sudden she just entrusted to me the things that were just totally on her heart. Like, I think this is a tremendous gift that women have our relationality and the way we can just kind of get to the heart of things. Like if you get women together, they immediately want to talk about basically what's on their heart. And like, that's a real richness. That's something that guys don't typically do together in a group, unless you have like one good friend who you confide in or something, but it's, it's a really a great gift that, that women have this kind of natural 
um, empathy and, and kind of just relating to one another. And of course, it's important for motherhood. So God entrusts the human person to women in a very unique way. Um, from the very moment you know of their existence, they're just utterly enveloped in the body of a woman. That's a gift. It's unfortunate in our culture, you know, the, the womb could be kind of very hostile place in a way it could be unsafe depending on the mother's will towards her child. But in God's design, the baby is meant to be received um, really from the very moment of its existence in relation to her. And, and that's very different from the way the man relates to the, the newborn baby. You know, and, and think of this too, like from the very, really like for the rest of your life, you bear a mark on your torso, like your belly button, that you came into existence in communion with someone else. And mm. I just think like, that's an amazing, that's an amazing kind of thing. What we owe to our own mothers and that God's plan for us, even from the beginning was this kind of communion. And, and that's something that's kind of a unique gift to women. Also, I would say for generosity. So women, they can be very selfless for the sake of other persons. They're interested in the personal. So, so Edith Stein says, for example, women are interested in the personal. Now, it doesn't mean they can't be interested in other things. Like women like math, they like other things like that as well. But the reality is that she will often be interested in, in abstract things in relation to the personal. So like take ethics, for example. You know, there's a lot of abstract scientific principles and how you apply them. But, but the deeper concern for the ethical is in a way part of this awareness of, of the other and how, how they should be treated. So how do I kind of live this in my life? I see it this way. I, I try to live what God has called me to live. So he's given me the vocation of marriage, which I love. It's such a great life. And so I see my own femininity, first of all, as a wife. And there's particular gifts there. Like, for example, one of the really great feminine gifts is what I would call something like magnetism. So women, even if they're not aware of it, they attract and they send signals. Like, for example, you know, we know this about the feminine body. You know, we need to dress modestly because our body can send signals, right? It's, it's very attractive. Well, a similar thing about her soul. Like, if a woman is light and happy and fun and joyful, that's something that, that just attracts and can draw other people into that joy and they feel comfortable in her presence. So I think that there's some, there's unique gifts here that, that the wife has to really cultivate, you know, intimacy for her marriage, and then also to create a kind of home for her children. So I see myself as trying to exercise this genius as a wife, as a, as a companion, as someone who also, here's another key desire, I think, for the feminine heart is that we want to be cherished and adored. And we want like a very deep union of love at the core of the feminine heart, you know, so you, you can see this fulfilled in different ways, maybe through marriage, even in religious life. Okay. There's a, there's that desire for union, a kind of spousal union even with Christ. So I, I think that is a part of the feminine genius for sure. And then also obviously in my role as mother, I've opened myself, my heart, my body, <laughs> everything to my children. Um, and, you know, and they take everything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. Uh, yeah. 
It's interesting how you talked about the receptivity of women and also how the body is a reflection in a lot of ways of the soul. And I think there's such a disconnect in our culture to see the body and the soul not necessarily in union with being masculine or feminine. And so obviously we enter into a lot of confusion and problems there. And I think John Paul II's Theology of the Body was really seeking to theologically clarify a lot of that. And and you kind of touched upon that as well, that this isn't something that is only seen naturally in her body, but is very much reflected in her soul and in her very being, which is inseparable. And I just had to laugh when you were talking about how women relate in groups and then also just going into your pediatrician and her kind of just sharing all of these personal things because my husband often will say things like that where I will go into a doctor's office or somewhere that I don't know this person at all and I'll come out and say, wow, you know, she told me all about this and he'll be like, what? Why? You know, like, isn't that oversharing or, you know, why would this person tell you're a complete stranger? You know, it's been such a pattern throughout the years. I think it was so foreign at first in our relationship, but now he's just like, I don't know what it is about you that people think they can just tell you their whole life. I think it is more, you know, authentic to women maybe in general. And then also I'm part of a women's group that meets once a month. And my husband, when I come home, he'll just say, so how many people cried this week? Like, I think he honestly thinks it's just a time for us to get together and pass around tissues and just start bawling because like you said, the nature is so entirely different. It's so personal, but it's very deep, you know, and we get into, into a lot of the heart of the gospel, which is what our focus is, but it becomes so personal and people are able to be so vulnerable and to share with each other in that very intimate way that I think men, it would take a lot longer in most cases to develop that intimacy and to be okay with sharing something so genuine at that level and depth. Right. I I think so. In fact, Alice von Hildebrand, she's another wonderful woman who's written a lot. Actually, she has a book called The Privilege of Being a Woman. And one of the things she notes in there, it made me think of this when you were saying that, passing the tissues around, is she says something that's unique about women is that they're unashamed of their tears. They're unashamed of them. They, In other words, they feel so deeply and they can connect with other people in their hearts so richly that that's a tremendous gift. It, there's a, a rich place for healing there, a rich space for friendship, and that they're moved profoundly by the beauty of things, by the sorrow of their, you know, what may be happening in their life or a friend's life. And they can just enter in a, in a very deep and empathetic way into, you know, another person's heart. Like that's something incredibly rich. So I think sometimes our society kind of looks down on that as if that's sort of a weakness. But I think if we look at it from the way that God had kind of designed us, that that's actually really a great strength. I mean, think of how many people in our world right now are so lonely. You know, it's like loneliness is like a new poverty in the modern world. Like we have, you know, 400,000 Facebook friends, but like mm-hmm. how many people will you, you know, will sit with you and hear what's on your heart and pass you a tissue box? That is a gift. So I think that is a part of the feminine genius is 
having that sensitivity to the other person, that empathy to enter into somebody else's heart. And of course, you see that you see the value of this for children, you see the value of it for raising a family. But it's also a great gift to to one another to fellow female friends, you know, even to society. And that's one thing I've always kind of admired about John Paul II's thought on this is that while there's a kind of there's a kind of a push in in, in secular feminism for women's equality, okay, equality, equality in, in all these various matters, what John Paul saw was that there's a kind of not just, you know, equality, but there's a difference about women and that difference also should be shared with society. So it's not only about equality, but that she has a kind of uniqueness that first it satisfies her, for example, in in marriage, the, the masculine corresponding to her own heart's desires. And then so her gifts being shared with him, being shared with the family, but also that, you know, we're not just like isolated families, like we live in a community. And so that we can also share this kind of feminine gift even outside of the family. And that's something that's really very positive. And how would you say that true and authentic femininity honors masculinity as well as the differences and equalities of the sexes as you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Yeah, sometimes, or maybe even more often in our culture, you know, the Me Too movement and all other kinds of things, there's a kind of sense in which if you say, I'm, I'm interested in this feminine side, I'm interested in women's things, that necessarily means, okay, some kind of male bashing. And um, it's very unfortunate for many reasons, one of which is when you respect men and their distinctive gifts, then you actually have a better chance of getting your own heart's desires as a woman. <laughs> but um, John Paul II saw that there's a kind of complementarity. There's an equality but also a kind of a difference. So here's a beautiful image for you. We were just in my Bible class. We were talking about Genesis and um, when Adam first beholds Eve for the first time, and he says this one at last, okay, he's like looking and God's, he sees he's alone and he gives him the animals first. And he has to kind of realize that even the animals existentially sort of don't fulfill him in the way he needs. And then at last, this woman. And um, the image is very striking that she's made from the rib. And um, John Chrysostom comments on it by saying this. He says, she's made not from his head, the bone of the head, so as to lord over him. She's not made from his feet so as to be his slave, but from the rib, meaning right from around his own heart. Mm, that's great. Beautiful imagery. Yeah, there's a father of the church for you. Yeah, I just thought that's a beautiful image where he looks on her and he desires her and he wants to also make her happy. Her desire is also fulfilled in finding that union with him and finding someone who will fight for her. You know, I mean, in a way, that's kind of part of the core desire, I think, at, at the heart of femininity is we're delighted when we know there's a special someone in our life who is willing to fight for us. Like we think that is just, it's so admirable, mm-hmm. right? Like I'll, I'll tell you this quick story. When, when my husband proposed to me, we were in Phoenix, we went on this long hike and uh, I won't tell you the whole story, but so he got down on one knee and he, he asked me to marry him. And I said, yes. And then as we were, we were kind of leaving and, and going back, you know, on the way back of the hiking trail, it wasn't very long after, maybe a few minutes after we were passing by this other couple on the, on the trail. And I say we were walking, we were probably like frolicking, you know, (laughs) 
um, um, this wife who I didn't know, okay, just turned to me and she said, did, did he just propose to you? And I turned around and I said, yes, how did you know? And she said, because that man looks like he would take on a brick wall for you and not flinch. Mm. And that's what she said. And I'm like, yes, he would, you know, and that's it. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's, that's the complementarity right there. You know, the man who's willing to lay down his life for her and her receiving that love and feeling cherished by that. I think that's something that's really very deep in the heart of a woman. She wants to be loved and adored and cherished, which also means respecting his masculinity. You know, there's a kind of attack there, like, oh, all masculinity is violence. No, it's it's not violence. Um, but there is a kind of aggressiveness that is proper to males, which is very good, right? If your family's under attack, he's going to rise and fight on, on behalf of the family and, mm-hmm. and will spend himself. Here's part of the masculine heart right there is like, he will spend himself entirely for the sake of her and for their children, you know? And that's what he does, ladies, when he goes to work, you know, every day is he's, he's um, spending himself for the sake of his beloved. Like he would move a mountain for her. You know? And, and I think that's something that's, amazing. And that was part of God's design. And I love that word helpmate. You know, when you read back in Genesis that each one, you think of Eve as the helpmate to Adam and Adam as the helpmate to Eve, that they're both meant to complement each other, to help each other ultimately be in eternity, communion with God. And that is through reflecting each other's gifts and respecting those authentic differences and gifts that God gave us by nature. Mm-hmm. And um, you gave a presentation called The Redemption of Eve and the Search for Happiness as we venture to talk about Adam and Eve. <laughs> and I just thought that that was really fascinating how you explained the rediscovery of God's goodness and that we as women almost have this deep-seated doubt of God's goodness to us. So can you go deeper into explaining that? Sure, yeah. So one of the things that really struck me about Genesis is this, is that the serpent, he knows, how, how am I going to confuse the world here? How, how am I going to bring them down? And what does he do? He goes to Eve and he kind of implants in her heart a doubt about who God is. So the, what he says to her is, does God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? And it's very subtle because the original command was not don't eat from any tree. It was just don't eat from this one. Just don't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the way he characterizes God is, look at him. He puts you in this place and he just says no to everything, right? He says, don't eat any of these things. I go, what kind of God is this? So, initially she doesn't really fall for it. She corrects him. She says, well, actually he says, just don't eat from this tree. Okay. But then see what's happened, even though she is sort of aware that he's kind of hasn't said the the command rightly, he's already planted this seed of doubt and he gets her to think that maybe God is holding out on her. So, and here's, what's very interesting is that in a way there's something a little bit truthful about his lie, which is what makes it so powerful. So in the beginning, they're in a kind of paradise with God, but they're not yet seeing the fullness of like the beatific 
vision. So in a way, Satan is saying, look, he is holding out on you. If you want happiness, you're going to have to take it. If you want to be like God, you're going to have to do it your own way. And that's what it, that's the kind of the lie that really duped or deceived Eve. And then she freely um, decided to go along with that. And Adam as well. So when she says she gave the fruit to her husband who was with her, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, we're, we're supposed to rise up and, and protect her. So they're both complicit, you know, in the original fall. Here's what's interesting. In the New Testament, in one of the letters of John, Lewis first letter, he says, Beloved, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. So what, what John is saying is this desire to be like God was a part of the plan from the beginning. God wanted to bestow on us this communion with him, being like him, but with him. And what Satan tempted Eve is, uh, is by saying, well, look, you, if you really want to be happy, if you really want the best that's out there, you're going to have to do it on your own. Don't trust him. He's not trustworthy. He's holding out on you. And that's kind of the lie. That's part of the woundedness, I think, that's at the root of every human being, but especially in a unique way, I think, for women. So we think sometimes in our hearts, God really isn't that good. Like, if I trust him, I'm going to be unhappy. I'm afraid to trust him. Um, I have to do it my own way. I have to usurp everything in order to find happiness. I mean, in a way, you can kind of see at the heart of some of the more secular feminist movements, this idea, look, you have to recreate the whole order of things, throw off, you know, what is part of your distinctive real feminine genius that's rooted in your nature, that's rooted in creation, if you want to find happiness. And here's the truth is like, you never will find that happiness because that's not the design by which you were made. So just as you were saying earlier, there's this union between body and soul. And the soul, in a way, kind of mirrors what we see in the body. Uh, You'll never find that happiness that you long for, unless we see that God, the creator, um, build this plan and that our natures are good. We don't need to rebel against it all the time. Um, in fact, by in kind of embracing it, we'll kind of rediscover a newfound happiness and joy. And that's what we see in Mary when she's kind of is sort of undoing Eve's disobedience. Um, when she says, let it be done unto me according to your word. It's not just let me obey, but I'm downcast or something. But she has a confidence in his goodness. And that's kind of um, God's recreating anew through Mary and through this new pregnancy with with Christ. And that's what starts the, the whole order of redemption. So the redemption of Eve is a part of this rediscovery that God is good, that he delights in her. He looks at her and says, gosh, I made her. Isn't she beautiful? She's the crown of creation. Um, I think that's something a lot of women struggle with. Um, But God wants us to see that we are lovable and that we are loved and that he's called us to do something fruitful with our lives and that that also is fulfilling for us. So the more that we follow his plan, the more we find that our own hearts are fulfilled precisely by living out this genius kind of rooted in our nature. I love that you point out that Mary, that fullness of grace creates a confidence in her of 
what God is doing. There's not a fear or a cowardice in any way, but it's really a confidence and a courage, you know, that she's able to say yes to God. And, um, as you were saying about wanting to go against God in doing it our own way, I think that's a common thread when a lot of people talk about their conversion stories to Christ, to the church, coming back or, or coming into communion with the church. They talk about how they tried so hard to do it their own way. And it's always the common thread that I thought if I did it this way, if I did it God's way, it wouldn't be fun. I wouldn't be fulfilled. I wouldn't have true happiness or joy. It wouldn't be authentic. I would have to, you know, give up all of these things that create joy in my life. And of course, we see that Satan's still spinning that lie throughout all of these many, many centuries later. So I want to move into a modern struggle that women have. Um, Many women struggle with being too open or too private with their discernment to ethically and responsibly welcome children into the family. For instance, our society seems to have limited public boundaries in asking a woman about her family size and fertility decisions. And likewise, many women publicly proclaim when they're finished having children or or other things like that. Pope Francis, however, has sought to enter into greater prayerful discernment on fertility and natural family planning to be open with that dialogue. Yet the countercultural strain in Christian families seems to sometimes be felt in continuing to welcome children despite all other factors of discernment. On top of that, to not really be able to feel that they can speak about that in any way or to show any kind of unrest maybe in welcoming other children because they feel like they just have to be incredibly joyful in welcoming many, many children. So what advice would you give in navigating these tough spiritual decisions and being open with other women in, in sharing about that as well? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question. So there's really a couple questions in there. One is, is about the discernment of receiving new life into your family. So in Humanae Vitae, as well as in Gaudium et Spes, it talks about responsible family planning. And by that term, it it means those who both prudently and generously are open to receiving more children and those who need to limit their family size for either a certain or indefinite period of time. So that's that's Paul VI from Humanae Vitae. Now, a couple things there. One is that they use the language of prudently and generously. And um, I think that's kind of where some of the discernment lies. So maybe this is helpful to look at through a few examples. Okay, so first of all, uh, let's talk about another factor here, is that the modern way of life is very different than, say, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. We live as much more like in a nuclear family from many families. You don't really live with or close by your parents, your you know, aunts, uncles, okay, before you had the automobile, you know, you had people who were kind of like your clan that you lived with. Now you have father, mother, kids in the home, you may not even know your neighbors. Okay, you're worried about your young kids getting hit by cars. So you stay inside. Okay, It's, it's a very different kind of way of life. We're much more isolated. Um, and, and there's a lot of stress on the mother, I think, in this scenario, because whereas she used to have 
many people who she lived with and interacted with. Okay, so maybe she's nursing the baby. Maybe somebody's making lunch. Um, somebody else is watching her other toddler. Now it's just her. She has to somehow simultaneously make lunch, nurse the baby, and you know, watch for the toddler not jumping off of the top of the refrigerator. You know, it's, it's a lot going on that's very different than when there were other people around. And not to mention, there were other adults in her life whom she could talk to and talk about the feminine genius and were so relational and talkative. Even they've done studies on this, that, that young girls use significantly more words a day than even young boys, that our language development, our relationality is so much more, is so much stronger in that respect. So there's a lot of factors here. So you could see a woman who, let's say she's had a few kids and she feels like, oh my gosh, like I'm at my maximum here. Like I just cannot see myself having any more kids. Okay. You could come to this in a discernment. What, what I think maybe would be helpful is to just to discern where am I at now? You know, if right now receiving another child would be um, it, like we just couldn't handle it either for various reasons, financial reasons, reasons of health. You know, it takes nine months to gestate the baby. It's not like the woman just zaps back into perfect health two days after delivery. Okay, her body needs time to recover. If she's had a C-section, even more so. Um, there's a lot of factors there. The health of the woman is a huge factor. And also we mean by that psychological health. So women can often experience baby blues or postpartum depression. So there has to be a kind of sensitivity to, to all of those factors. So you might say, okay, I just don't see myself having, you know, more kids either right now or ever. You know, you might say that. Well, all you need to decide is what you're going to do right now. That's all you need to decide. If you're at peace with the fact that, hey, we just can't, now's not a good time. Okay, that's a discernment you make, you know, you and your spouse together. Um, you know, if you want to share that with friends, that's fine. Here's another extreme. You know, before there was natural family planning, it, it, let me put it this way. There's no moral obligation to have to use natural family planning unless there's like some grave risk, like to become pregnant would pose a great you know, health risk or something. If you, maybe you don't like charting and it's annoying to you, okay? So no one's saying you have to do that necessarily. Let's say that you, you know, you conceive and then you, you're nursing your babies and then the next time you'll get pregnant is maybe two or even three years spaced out. Well, hey, you know, that's great. And if you don't mind and that's working for you, then that's no problem. But let's say the same woman says, well, I refuse to use any kind of discernment, any kind of, you know, natural family planning to space out my family. Um, and she continues to be pregnant quickly, you know, in rapid succession, and it's taking a toll on her health. Um, she's not able to care for her children as well as she'd like. Well, then maybe you'd say, hey, it's time for us to reconsider here. So these are all factors that you have to keep in mind. You know, there can be a time when having this knowledge of the cycles of fertility is really helpful and important, and you should use it um, to prudently and generously make those decisions. And then at the same time, if somebody says, well, we don't really use it um, and it's working fine for us, like, hey, then that that's also fine. It's a tool that you can use that I think probably most couples will find that they will need to use at some point, which is why I think it's very valuable. It can also be valuable for spotting health problems. And that's another issue. But Right. I think that that's really good wisdom to be able to say this is where we are right now. And obviously, this doesn't have to be a proclamation. It can just be between the spouses or spiritual director or whatever, or if they want to share in a group that they're comfortable with to be able to say, this is where we are right now. But I, I do like the fact that the church is so open to that discernment that 
It's not about proclaiming we've had such and such amount of kids or we've had certain amount of kids, these genders. So we're happy, you know, we've kind of met our quota or our fulfillment. Um, it's not looking at kids in that way. It's, it's much more looking at as a discernment between the spouses and God, as far as what's next. And I think that that is what all discernment is about. So, but it, it takes a lot of, I think, reconditioning of your mind almost to think of things that way, especially if maybe that wasn't always modeled or you weren't necessarily familiar with that mindset of natural family planning growing up or being new to the church or Because I think that that idea of having a boy and a girl and being done is so prevalent in our society that it's many people can talk about getting asked as soon as you meet that, you know, having a boy and then a girl, it's kind of, you get this head scratch if you get pregnant after that, because it's almost like, well, why, you know, like, well, you've already met your quota. You've got your boy and you've got your girl. And I think that mentality is so prevalent that that it's almost like you, you need to recondition yourself all the time to say, no, this is a discernment constantly throughout our fertile period as spouses. Right. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And, you know, comments like that, I think, come from a society that has for over 50 years now accepted contraception as a normal way of life. Now, just to put this in perspective, all Christian churches since the beginning of Christianity up until 1930 thought that using contraception was a grave moral evil. All Christian churches, the very first one that departed from that was the Anglican church in 1930. And then from the 30s on, every other major Christian church other than the Catholic church has basically kind of followed the culture um, on that issue. And so, and that culture now shapes everything. So now they think that it's weird if you, like you said, you have more than a boy and a girl, but really from the perspective of human history, that's kind of weird. Yeah. We, here's the thing. Like if you were to just, let's just say, just say, look, we're just going to take contraception out of your marital picture. Let's just, even if someone is there and they're listening and they're using it, you know, let's just say, just, just as a thought experiment, just lift it out. All of a sudden you are faced with the reality that, Hey, sex causes babies, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, not every time, but a lot of the time it's ordered that way. I mean, she's receiving him, um, you know, he's receiving her and sort of the telos of it is ordered to conception. And it just depends on the woman's cycle where she is, whether or not, um, you know, that will occur. Um, so if you just sort of take that thought experiment, just take the contraception out for a minute that means that for the duration of a woman's fertile years, she could potentially be conceiving, you know, a large number of children. And that's kind of the main purpose of what what sexuality is really aiming for, for, for a large family. Um, now, again, it doesn't necessarily mean everyone must have a large family, but then what that does mean is that you have to discern where are we with our, you know, our resources? And like I said, the, the modern situation is very different for a lot of couples who, you know, are, are living more in a nuclear family situation. Um, and so you have to kind of evaluate as you go along. But, but look what natural family planning does. It means that when a woman is fertile, okay, she tends to have an increase of libido. So she, her body wants to conceive, 
And so she's experiencing this heightened desire. She's giving off pheromones, which make her more attractive to her husband. Her husband is like, hey, honey, I'm interested, you know, right? I mean, it doesn't, you know, they do it in their husband's way. <laughs> and, um, you know, and so it, everything is like going towards procreation. And then you have to stop and say to yourself, well, wait a minute, is this, you know, is this prudent? Is this what we are able to do right now for our family? But um, so natural family planning, there's almost a kind of a dynamic already sort of written into it where, you know, when you're discerning things, less than serious reasons sometimes get rooted out because you have to say, well, how serious is this reason really, you know, Mm -hmm. undertake, you know, a, a genuine challenge of abstaining for some time of the month as married persons. I mean, to a culture that's just like, sex is your right at any time in any place. This is just shocking. But but who has the deeper communion? I mean, here's here's the key thing. Who has what you really, really desire, which is the woman feeling cherished by her man, the man who says to her through his actions, yeah, I'm willing to wait for you. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. I'll take on that brick wall for you, right? That's love. And she feels cherished by that and wants to also kind of respond, you know, to that love. Um, and then, you know, say that they're over a time where, you know, well, we don't really have any more grave reasons that I can foresee. Yeah, let's let's be more open now um, to, to having that child. So there's a constant discernment, um, which I think is very healthy because it says, God, what do you want for our family? You know, I know that you will give us the family that will bring us to you. You know, and that's going to look differently for a number of, of families. Okay, and here's where, where I think Catholics can encourage each other instead of causing conflict. One thing that Paul noted in his letter to the Corinthians is that it's very tempting for us to see ourselves all as the same, and then we, we have conflict with one another. Whereas we are part of members of one body. So each of us has different gifts, you know, talents circumstances that that might look different. So you might have a couple and maybe you don't know they're really trying to have kids but they just are ha- they're miscarrying, you know, constantly. You know, that's a, a huge cross mm-hmm. um, for them, the cross of infertility. It's and for those couples that suffer with that, they're really in between a rock and a hard place because you got a culture that's like, oh, just do IVF, you know, who cares? Um and and there's moral reasons that are problematic with that. So they, they might say no, but then on the other hand, you know, their Catholic, other Catholic friends may be having lots of kids and they, and then they're talking about all the kid drama and, and funny stories and stuff. And they feel like they don't share in that experience. And so it can be very isolating, you know, for them. Um, each person has their own set of circumstances. So one might be able to, because of finances or because of their health or whatever, be able to have more children. Another family might not. So that's up to their own discernment. Um, if you're trying to follow the church's teaching and you're using natural family planning, like I said, there's already a kind of inner dynamic there where because you love your spouse and you desire that union, it's going to have to be pretty darn good reason to want to say, hey, we're going to have to take on this periodic continence um, for some you know period of the month or because we, we realize that this would not be prudent you know, kind of on our part. Right. And then the last question I wanted to ask you is you touched upon the isolation and how our society has changed so much in the way that we live together and physical distance from loved ones. 
as well as the culture being busier, more isolated itself and disconnected relationally. So how can a woman who is staying at home, which a lot of women who stay home report feeling very isolated, how can she guard her value in the home and overcome that isolation epidemic? Yeah, that's a great question. I remember when I had, I think I had, it was like two kids under two. My first two were 14 months apart. And then I was pregnant with my third. And um, it was very hard because I didn't know it. We had just moved and I didn't know anybody. And I did, I wasn't yet aware of how weird the isolation factor was. Like I, because I hadn't really like considered how weird it was. But then one day I asked this mom who had six kids, I was just saying how like I'm having such a hard time, you know, like just getting through the day and I can't really explain why. And I was kind of half waiting for her to be like, well, offer it up, you know, like, but she wasn't at all like that. And she was saying like, oh, this is the way we live now is very strange. And like, we have to just be more intentional about getting our own needs met. So I think this is really important. Here's an analogy. Sometimes on an airplane, they tell you, put your own oxygen mask on first before you help somebody else. Because look, if you're holding your baby on the plane, but you pass out, your baby's going to pass out too. So you have to take care of yourself if you want to take care of your children. So women need to reach out to other women who are in similar state of life. So that means moms who are at home with their kids, reach out to other moms, go on play dates, get out of the house. You're going to have to be more intentional about it because it's not just going to happen. And that's hard too, because you're like, oh, if I go out, then my kid's going to get his nap at the right time and then they'll be fussy. Then we'll pay for this later. Then they'll be up all night. Uh, you know, <laughs> juggling all these things. What we're doing here in Irving, there's something that one of the, the moms started here, which is really great. They call it the Catholic Mother's Ministry. And they started putting on retreats for mothers. And then they actually have like kind of a, a blog post that goes out like once a week written by mothers for mothers to kind of encourage us along the way. I mean, one thing to also keep in mind is the importance of what you're doing. There's nothing more important than forming a child and showing them their own worth, that they know that they're loved. Just to know that great dignity that comes in, in motherhood. Think of this. God chose to redeem the human race through the motherhood of Mary and through this amazing pregnancy that gave us the Savior. So he exalted the dignity of motherhood. It's already really greatly dignified, even in the natural order. But he wanted us to know it so much that he chose this as the means by which the Savior of the whole world would become known. And so every mother, in a way, is participating in that. You're you're participating in the work of redeeming the world by what you do in your family. And that is so important to keep in mind, you know? And so when you're like sweeping up crumbs for the 1400th time, <laughs> what God is calling me to do is to work with him in the redemption of the world by being faithful to what he's given me. So look, he's given me these kids, so I have to do the best that I can to be you know, a good mother to them. Uh, while I'm also taking care of myself, bodily health, and take care of your heart and your spirit. You know, this is something I had to learn. I thought I I would be a good mom if I just like sacrificed everything, and then at the end of the day, I was like the giving tree, nothing left. But actually, it's okay to just sit down and do something for yourself, and they can play on the floor, and that's fine. Entertain themselves. That's also a good thing you want to teach them, right? Um, yeah. So that's also part of you know that moral and formative education. And then when you are filled 
you have something to give. So you're less likely to be, you know, impatient. The more that you are filled, the more you have something to give. So it's very important for moms um, to recognize the dignity of what they are doing. And it's hard amidst a culture that tends sometimes to look down on that, to recognize their dignity, to take care of themselves. Thank you so much. Yes, that's wonderful. Well, I want to thank Irene Alexander for being our guest tonight. And I will have links to Irene's work in this post so you can read more about the fabulous things that she is taking on. And I want to thank you for sharing about the feminine genius with us tonight, Irene, and um, many blessings on your continued work. Thank you so much.